The Diaries. July 11th, 2021. The summer rain. I am standing at the window of the hotel room on the 23rd floor, looking out at the Sydney Harbor. The vista is breathtaking. It is dusk, so the sky is peach purple with wispy white clouds here and there. On the left is the Sydney Harbor Bridge, all lit up for the evening and mirrored on the moving water below. From the bridge, the harbor forms a U-shape. Boats are coming and going, and down below, people are out enjoying the gorgeous evening, shopping, heading to restaurants, walking through the large park below. Not all, but some of the trees have turned color and even lost their leaves, because of course it is winter in this part of the world, although it never seems to dip below a comfortable 15 degrees Celsius or 60 Fahrenheit. At the top of the U-shape on the far right side is the inimitable Sydney Opera House, with its striking avian forms, a flight in the twilight sky. I take it all in with a deep breath, and then walk back over to the bed to sit beside my three sisters. Our second youngest sister, Madison, has just moved here with her partner, Nelson, who is from Australia. They met in Canada, where he was living and working for a few years. My sisters, Carolyn, Haley, and myself have decided to make the journey here with them, mostly to keep Madison comforted and accompanied during the mandatory two-week quarantine period. They're in the middle of talking about something I missed, so I walk back over to the window to enjoy the view once again. But my fixation is interrupted by the sound of voices entering the room. I look around the room, I think, it's starting to look like a hotel party in here. I recognize most of the people as friends or acquaintances. But even Vishen Lakhiani, the CEO of Mind Valley, is here. What is he doing here? I wonder to myself. I mean, I would love to get to know him. He's fascinating. I wonder if he would be interested in me romantically, I ask myself. And none of this occurs to me as strange at the time, of course, because number one, I am sleeping, and number two, the scene I am recounting is my dream from last night. But I will continue with it to get to what I intuit as the central message, beyond, of course, the fact that apparently I want to date Vishen Lakiani. So back to the dream. Carolyn and I decide to go downstairs to the shopping complex to get some provisions, which of course we would not be able to do in hotel quarantine, but anyways. Haley stays back to be with Madison. We wander through bookstores and little food markets and continue walking down the path of the indoor parquet, which is beautifully adorned with trees, plants, and even tropical birds flying about. Carolyn is on my right side as we walk. What is that? She points to a bag in my right hand. I don't know. I open the decorative paper shopping bag and lift out a parcel wrapped in brown paper. I open it to reveal a thick, heavy hardcover book. The title reads, The Collective Unconscious by Dr. Carl Jung. This, I say tapping my finger on the title and looking at her intently, this is the secret. End scene. 
Hmm. Message. Tap into the collective unconscious. I wake up to a soft gray day. Opening the windows, I examine the light summer rain that mists the verdant green world. And it's lovely, gentle, soothing, a perfect day for reflection. Some candles, I think. So I warm some coffee, light the Himalayan salt lamp, and then one by one I light the candles, each one as a prayer, as Olivier Clare taught me. As I light the candle before the Buddha, I say, I receive your wisdom with loving gratitude and pause. By the wooden Indonesian elephant, there is a candle in a mirrored glass jar. I light it and whisper, Show me the authentic spiritual path. On my writing desk sits a river rock candle that my mom made for me. I light it and ask, Please cleanse my mind, body, and spirit with your divine light. The summer rain is falling harder outside. With candles glowing, I sit down to meditate. I put on my headphones to play some meditative music, take my quartz crystal in my hands, and close my eyes. And I just let my awareness melt into my inner being, which is part of the one consciousness, and float without expectation. Spontaneously, silently, I say, Show me in symbols what I am meant to see. Minutes later, almost having forgotten what I asked, I see the outline of a cow's head in my inner vision. I note it and release it. Then after a while, I sense the message, Listen with your entire being. So I do, and I feel my inner being as though flowering from within. And a little while later, I hear the words, a doorway, okay, and then I release that too. And then gradually, I feel a pink-purple light appearing until I am bathed in this light that feels like utter bliss. I remain there for several minutes, and then I gather my awareness and close my meditation with thank you, thank you, thank you. Later on, I Google cow meaning spiritual because I'm not aware of what it means, and I learn this. The cow can represent patience, nourishment, female power, potential, possibility, beginnings, and calm. Much like the deer, they are a positive symbol in life. And because it was an outline against a black backdrop, I learned that a black cow represents the unknown and transformation. Then there was the doorway, which intuitively means to me that it is time to step through a new portal to make a new beginning. In spirituality, pink light represents the love and support of the universe, and purple is the light of transformation, the light of Archangel Zekiel. So transformation and the loving support of life. This is the message, and we have the key to that doorway, you and I. Do you know what it is? Sadhana, consistent daily practice, and self-honoring choices. In a way, it is the message that Spirit is always offering us, that every moment is a chance for us to awaken more into the energy of love, 
to expand into our soul's purpose and live our fullest lives if we will just meet life halfway through our sadhana. Sitting back at my writing desk, the rain has stopped, the birds are alight and singing. I gaze back at the candle atop the river rock, watching the flame rise and dance in all its ethereal mystery, and whisper, I hear you, spirit, and I am ready. Hi, and welcome to season two of the show, The Midsummer Diaries. I'm Jen, and I'm so honored and excited to spend this time with you. In this season, I want us to go even deeper, to explore new places in the landscape of our human experience, always with the goal of bringing more love and light into your life, empowering you to discover your true inner self and live your fullest life, and to raise our loving vibration together. In today's episode, we'll explore the light and the shadow within us, the mysterious realm of the collective unconscious, and the Egyptian and Tibetan books of the dead. What do all of these subjects have in common? Well, they're things that we look away from, suppress, even fear, and they're all pathways to understanding and connecting with the deeper purpose of our lives. I also have a fascinating conversation to share with you from the interview with my very esteemed guest today. We'll come to that a little later. First of all, when I talk about the light and the darkness within, it's the same as when we talk about day and night. Neither is better or worse than the other. They're simply different parts of the same cycle as our planet rotates around the sun. And the sunlight gives us life, but the darkness encourages us to rest and recuperate. So both day and night are integral to our vitality. And in the same way, acknowledging both our light and our shadow aspects are integral to rediscovering our wholeness, which is to say our healing. Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychologist and psychiatrist who founded analytic psychology, said this about shadows. Everyone carries a shadow, the unknown dark side of the personality, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. So let me illustrate an example of the shadow, and I'll do this by sharing something about myself with you. When I was a little girl, I was very expressive, outgoing, playful. And when I was about 11, I went to the National Ballet of Canada where I studied for many years to be a professional dancer. Somewhere between that experience of studying ballet, which was very regimented, and puberty when I became very self-conscious, as we all do to a degree, I gradually got very controlled and sort of locked inside myself, I felt. And that suppression of self was reinforced by some little traumas when I was young. We all have them. So a shadow self is simply part of ourselves that we have removed from the light 
and pushed down or hidden away for one reason or another. And for me, that was the part of me that felt free to express without judgment, to be imperfect, even wild. And so locked up and hidden in the shadows, longing to break free from myself, that part of me would come out in unexpected and sometimes unhealthy ways to myself and others until I was able to learn, introspect, and consciously reclaim that part of my being. Presence as well as compassion were key to that healing process. And I'm still learning, learning how to accept myself unconditionally, let myself be seen, be imperfect, free, be as warm and loving as I want to be. I suppressed that part of myself for a long time too. So I want to know what parts of you have you placed in the shadows, rejected or suppressed for fear that it would make you unacceptable or unloved, or maybe it was other people or early experiences that helped you put that part of you in the shadows. Let me guide you through a mini meditation right now to explore this. If you're at home and you can safely sit down, then you can go through this more deeply. But if you're out and walking, then just consider this for now and you can come back and repeat the process a little more deeply later. So wherever you are, just begin by relaxing your body, relax your facial muscles, and start to breathe slowly and deeply. You can place your hand on your heart and connect with your true inner being. So if you're sitting, you can also close your eyes and then ask yourself, Are there any parts of my authentic self that I or others have placed in the shadows? And then just be with yourself and let anything that wants to come forward now. I'll give you some space here. So for now, just be aware of anything that came forward for you. This is a starting point for your healing and wholeness. And if nothing came forward just yet, that's okay. You have planted a seed in your awareness that may allow it to reveal itself in the natural timing. And we'll come back to this at some point in the season because I think it's really important. Carl Jung also said this, Until you make the unconscious conscious, 
It will direct your life and you will call it fate. Isn't that powerful? Jung coined the term collective unconscious. It is one of the defining aspects of his orientation to psychology and life. It refers to the part of the unconscious mind that is derived from ancestral memory and experience and common to all humankind as distinct from the individual unconscious. And this was where Jung and his mentor, Sigmund Freud, parted ways because Freud believed strongly that only the personal unconscious exists and that all minds are totally separate rather than energetically and spiritually connected like Jung believed. Now let me here explain the distinction between the subconscious and the unconscious minds. You can think of the mind as an iceberg where the conscious mind is above the water the subconscious mind is just below the water level, and the unconscious mind is at the very bottom, the underside of the iceberg, only accessible by deep diving. So in other words, the subconscious mind is the part of consciousness that is just not currently in focal awareness, but that we can access fairly easily if desired, such as to recall a certain experience or feeling. The unconscious mind, on the other hand, is more deeply recessed and difficult to access. Most of us have no idea of its contents, in fact, which could be things like memories from your mother's womb before birth, or in the case of the collective unconscious, memories of our ancestors and past times in history. And the unconscious part of the mind influences our mental processes and behavior in ways we're not even aware of through impulses, instincts, affect, and motivation, for example. So how do we then make the unconscious conscious? The two most powerful ways that I know is through exploring and analyzing our dreams, number one, and number two, through deep meditation and hypnosis. And we'll be doing more of both dream analysis and meditation on this show as time goes on, so you can count on that. Now, one more distinction where collective unconscious refers to the unified, submerged mind of all humankind from all of time, the collective consciousness, which you've heard me speak of often, is the whole of the energetic realm from which we emanate and of which we are an indivisible part. You may also call this spirit, all, the divine, universal intelligence, God, source. Essentially, the collective unconscious and collective consciousness are synonymous, but the differing terms facilitate different conversations, if that makes sense. Now let's talk a little bit about the Egyptian and Tibetan books of the dead. Why are we talking about this? Well, you'll understand that better in just a little while. But first, I will tell you that I used to be afraid of anything that mentioned death. I think many of us are. 
But what I've learned is that exploring death from a more spacious perspective, a spiritual orientation, can actually help us understand and realize the purpose of our lives more fully, rather than, as many of us do, pretend death doesn't apply to us. There's a passage in The Course in Miracles that stays with me, and it says, Above all else, I want to see clearly. So the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which was written over 4,000 years ago, is an Egyptian funerary text that would be set in the sarcophagi of the deceased and intended to help guide them through the underworld, the first passage following death, and eventually into the afterlife. And it's made up of spells compiled by many priests over a 1,000-year period in ancient Egypt. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is a Tibetan Buddhist text created in the 8th century to foretell and guide one through the experiences that the soul has after death in the bardo, the interval between death and rebirth in the next life. Etymologically speaking, it is more accurately called liberation through hearing in the intermediate state. And hearing is, in this translation, more like understanding or enlightenment or awakening. So this is the perfect time to introduce you to our very special guest today. Dr. Matthew McKay is a distinguished clinical psychologist, professor of psychology at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, co-founder of Haight-Ashbury Psychological Services, founder of the Berkeley CBT Clinic, and co-founder of the Bay Area Trauma Recovery Clinic, which serves low-income clients. He has authored and co-authored more than 40 books, and his latest book is called The Luminous Landscape of the Afterlife, Jordan's Message to the Living on What to Expect After Death. Jordan is Matthew's deceased son, and the main body of this book is called Jordan's Book of the Dead. Here is my conversation with Matt now. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for being here with me. Glad to be with you. So, Matt, can you tell us about your journey of coming to write this book? Well, it starts 13 years ago. My son was on his way home from work on his bicycle. He was accosted. There was a tremendous fight. He eventually broke away and someone shot him in the back. And his death, as I'm sure would be true for any parent, filled me with grief. But it also gave me these very compelling questions. Does his soul still exist? And wherever he is, is he okay? Is he happy? Those are the things that really consume me. So I set about trying to to find him. And I consulted mediums. I found that the mediums would convey something from Jordan, but I wasn't experiencing it. It was something they were reporting to me. I went to see uh, Alan Botkin, who developed something called induced after-death communication that uses a variant of EMDR, uh, which I use to treat trauma clients, and actually had an experience with Botkin of hearing Jordan. I heard him as if he was right next to me. He said very important things to me, and it did give me some really significant relief from the trauma of his loss. 
but still I yearn to connect to him in form of a conversation, to be able to ask questions, to find out much more about where he is and what it's like there and what he's, what he's learned in the process of his transition. So those things consume me. And eventually I consulted the late Ralph Messner, who was a specialist in after-death communication, and he taught me how to channel. And so it was a long journey that took more than a year to finally get to the point where I was able to begin these conversations with Jordan. But once I had found him, I had connected to him, he began to suggest that there were things we could do together, that he had knowledge that I could help him convey to people on earth. And he said, he said, well, there's no better person to tell people about death and what it's like and what the afterlife is like than someone who's died and has gone there. And so he suggested that we do this book, The Luminous Landscape of the Afterlife, for two reasons. One, to really help with the fear of death, which I think really consumes a lot of people. I know I've really struggled with it. But also to give people a picture of what it's like, what the afterlife looks like, and how we can prepare here in this life to make a successful transition. So those are the things that he wanted to convey and and teach people. Right. And Matt, can you tell us a little bit more about what the channeling process looks and feels like for you? Basically, what helps is if you have a talisman, something that connects you to the person on the other side. Uh, could be something they gave you, something that belonged to them, but a physical object that connects you to that soul. It helps to have something that creates eye fixation. It could be just looking at a mandala, or, or I use a candle, just watching the flame, holding my uh, gaze on the flame. It is essential to enter some kind of altered state. You can use auto-hypnosis. I use just a simple Vipassana meditation of focusing on the breath, counting the breath. When thoughts arise, return your attention to the breath. Just a very simple breath-focused meditation. And I do that enough to get into a feeling of calmness, of where your mental processes are slowing down. Eventually, when I just subjectively feel that I'm getting ready, and this is something Ralph taught me is to visualize a an orb the color of the sun just above your head and then experience that and and visualize it elongating all the way up to the spirit world to connect to the the person you're trying to reach and at the moment that that happens as i'm visualizing the orb turn into a cylinder of light i can feel something changing in my body i can feel a sensation in my scalp and it goes all the way down my spine and I feel physically different. I feel like I'm a receptor. My whole body now is tuned to receive messages from Jordan, telepathic messages. So that's how I get into that place in that state. I tend to use written communication. I'll write out at a question for Jordan. And then as he answers, as I'm hearing him, I am writing down what he says. It's, you know, for anyone who's just starting or learning to do channeling, it it really helps to just enter this space with a kind of acceptance, like wait for the first word to show up and write that down and then wait a little bit and maybe a couple more words show up. And oftentimes it's halting in the beginning. After a while, it's like a muscle that we develop and strengthen and we learn to actually open the channel more easily. The channel is clearer and less clogged with our own material. So I find that now, generally speaking, within a few moments, 
of opening the channel, Jordan and I are in the midst of a very <laughs> engaging conversation. And right now he's working on another book that he wants to create as a project between us. We used to have projects when he's living, we'd make things out of wood. Well, now mm-hmm. the projects involve him basically using me as a scribe to teach people important things that he thinks the world needs to know. That's beautiful. When that channeling process is happening and you write down a question for him and then you wait for him to respond, are you hearing his voice speak to you? I hear his voice in my head. So mm-hmm. It's not like with induced after death communication where you're actually hearing it from outside yeah. or visualizing having a vision of someone. I hear him inside. It is his voice. It's his authentic voice. It's very different from mine. He uses language differently than mm-hmm. I do. And what has been very meaningful to me and, and really amazing, actually, is that he's saying things that have never occurred to me in my life. He's telling me things. He has information, viewpoints, able to describe things that I have no knowledge of, never, ever thought about. And so what's showing up feels like it's outside of me. It's not me. It's not coming from me. It's in his voice and it's knowledge that I don't have. We've had confirming information come from psychics, mediums, that in fact, he's out there. He's, and in fact, Austin Wells is a medium reported that we were writing this book together and she, she didn't know him. She didn't know me. She didn't even have any idea that we were engaged in a, a book project. So we've had some confirming evidence from mediums, but the core of the experience is that I'm really talking to my son. I can feel him. I can hear him. My body is receiving the messages. I'm experiencing it on a visceral level. And I have to say, I'm reading the book right now. I'm a good ways through it. And I have a gut level sense of the authenticity and integrity that you're talking about that really flows through in the writing. I feel what you're saying. I appreciate you saying that because I think one of the things when I'm reading channel material from others, things that are revelatory in some way, there's this experience inside of you about, you know, that sort of like a gong of truth that goes off that something it feels deeply true. Uh, Again, you can almost feel it in your body. And so those experiences are also, to me, a very important indicator that I'm reading something authentic. Yeah, I completely agree. I just have that feeling at a visceral level, like you say, when I'm reading your book. Matt, can you paint a picture of the afterlife, the spirit world for us, as Jordan has related to you? First of all, there are a number of stops we go through early on, you know, right after our transition. We go to a, a kind of a, an anti-chamber to the spirit world, Jordan calls the landing place. And there we get used to not having a nervous system, not having a body. We, we go through quite a bit of an adjustment. And one of the things we struggle with in that landing place is that whatever we think literally can become an image. We can project what we think. And we, so if we think something, have a thought of something scary we can literally see that and miss what's really there. In the landing place, guides prepare images, usually that are very feel very safe, very, very comforting. But if we have very active minds and imaginations, we can literally see horrifying and terrifying things. And so part of getting ready for that particular place in the afterlife is tuning to love and being careful about mental images and be careful about thoughts that could turn into basically we could hallucinate. 
And Jordan talked about that in his transition. He he got there, whatever he thought about, he would see. If he thought about his house, he'd see his house. If he thought about someone, he could see an image of that person. Uh, Eventually, he was guided to actually think about something that was very calming to him, which is for him, Yosemite Valley. He thought about that. But then he started having other thoughts. He thought of an elephant. Now now he had an elephant in Yosemite Valley. And then he thought about some stomping Godzilla-type monster. Now the elephant and the monsters were fine. It's humorous, but on another level, it's really a very important thing that we have to face when we get in the spirit world, that whatever we think, we can project through energy forms. And, and until we learn to manage that, we are sometimes projecting things that certainly aren't there and can scare us and keep us from seeing what really is there. So after the landing place, and we've come kind of used to being disembodied, and we've also maybe worked through or shed some of the disturbing emotions that may have accompanied our death and some of the disturbing emotions that may actually be residuals of the life we just lived we get into the spirit world proper, and the first stop there is the life review. A lot has been said about that, and a lot of near-death experiencers get as far as the life review. Mm. And the one thing I want to say about the life review, if I may, is that it's different from just thinking about or literally reviewing a series of events in your life. In the life review, we experience things not only as the choices and our actions as they felt to us, but we experience them as they felt to everyone else. And so our actions, our choices, we actually experience in terms of the emotions, the impact on everyone who was present and impacted by that choice, not only then, but on into the future. So if a dad slaps his son, he's going to experience that slap as his son experienced that pain, that rejection, that physical hurt, not just then, but into the future in terms of how that slap impacts his son's feelings about himself, his sense of worth, his feelings about being loved or not loved, all of that you get to experience in the life review. So that to me was very striking and meaningful to realize that life review is not just watching something like you're watching a movie, you're experiencing it as everyone around you experienced your choices. So that's the next step. And then eventually we move on to our soul group. And I guess your question really is, what are we doing there? Because that's what most of our life in the spirit world is really connected to our soul group. And actually, the way I understand it from Jordan, most of what we're doing in the spirit world is learning. It's a gigantic school. And there's lots of different ways we learn in the the soul group. I mean, one, one way is just basically there's classwork with guides who are literally working with us, teaching us in ways that are not terribly different from if you go into college and you you walk into a classroom and someone is teaching you something. But there are different tools in the afterlife. One of the biggest tools that's used is the Akashic Record. And so part of our training is looking at our life carefully through the Akashic Record, not only our life, but other lives. We could look at literally any soul who's ever existed on this planet or any other planet, and we can look at their lives and look at the choices they made and what happened in their lives. And we learn a lot through the Akashic Record about cause and effect, how particular choices, particular actions lead to extraordinary effects sometimes that go on for years. It says in the Bible, the sins of the father visit on the son for seven generations. I mean, and we actually get to watch how certain choices we make are reverberating through generations. And we can see how the cause and effect goes over time not just through one life, but many lifetimes. So studying the Akashic record, not only of our lives, but other lives on earth, and we can study 
any soul in any incarnational experience on any planet. So that's a huge, huge part of the study. But here's another cool thing. You can look into the Akashic record and you can say, well, what if I did X instead of Y? What if I chose this direction instead of that path? And then it's essentially like a chapter that opens up in the Akashic record, a chapter of potentiality. And we could literally see everything that would have happened as a result of that choice. Now, it's not an actual alternate reality like we sometimes hear about in quantum mechanics, but it is a reality that we can examine in great depth. And then when we're finished, we close that chapter and just like a book, it ceases to be active. It becomes Mm -hmm. null in some way. But we can study virtually anything in history, not just our choices, but any soul and their choices and what would have happened if a choice had been different. So it's an extraordinary tool for learning. And that's one of the things we spend a lot of time doing in our life between lives. Well, there's a lot of other things we do. I, I can just say quickly, there's, you know, souls spend a lot of time hanging out with each other. They do a lot of visiting and they, they can move all over the afterlife, all over the spirit world, uh, visiting souls that are literally quite far away. They can engage in tourism where they can go to virtually any planet or dimension where there are what they call hallways of light, things that allow us to move our soul energy from one place to another. So we can go, we can literally move our soul energy to be in all of these very interesting places and experience them firsthand. There's a lot of creating that goes on in the afterlife. You know, souls make things that are sort of like sculptures. They make a lot of music. They can literally create uh, not just forms, energy forms, but life forms. And there's some advanced souls are very busy making new life forms they can create new healing processes. So there's a lot of creativity that's going on. Wow. Wow. I mean, it it just sounds so wondrous what you're describing, just as my experience of reading the book has been so wondrous. So just to track back a little bit. So when we leave this manifest world, this incarnation, as Jordan describes it, we go to the landing place where we adjust from not having a body anymore, and perhaps release some of our human mind projections and residual negative emotions. And through this whole process, there are spirit guides, right, that help us to move along to make these gradual adjustments to the afterlife. And then after the landing place, there's the life review, which from reading the book, as I understand it, and as you say, it's a learning experience of, you know, a firsthand feeling learning experience, but without punishment or judgment. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the most important features of the afterlife that Jordan emphasizes over and over again. There is no punishment. We are not judged for so-called sins during an incarnation. We get to review and learn from everything and every choice that we made in our last incarnation. But there's no rejection, no judgment, no punishment. It's just all learning. Some of the learning is is arduous because if you're, as we talk about life review, if you're, if you're having to see how you impacted the people around you and you did things that were hurtful or negative or damaging, you're going to feel that. And so it, it is arduous. And actually, just as an aside, Jordan talks about that there are some people that do so much damage in their lives, so much so-called evil, although there's no judgment about evil, 
but they create so much damage and they they may spend long periods of time in the healing place or in bardos where, where the guides are creating special conditions for us to learn and make these adjustments and begin shedding some of the pain that we're in and also the pain that we've caused. But still, even after all of that work, souls that have caused a great deal of pain and hurt have to go through a life review and some of them refuse to do it. And so they live in sort of these anti-worlds and they're not punished, but they are not really able to enter the spirit world because they're not willing to go through the learning process necessary to fully matriculate into the life of spirit. So it's an interesting fact that there are some souls that have done things that they just don't want to face. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not a matter of punishment, but it's a matter of, are you willing to learn from what happened? Right, right. And then you describe how, you know, once you've completed the life review and experience a learning and an awakening from this past life, then the spirit who has been willing to do that then moves on to the afterlife proper, the soul group, where they essentially go home, right? That's right. And the soul group is really our little spiritual family. When souls are first created, they are assembled into this group. They become part of this family that they will always on some level remain part of for their entire existence for all time. They will remain very deeply connected to their soul family and soul group. And primarily, the soul group is the, the group of people we incarnate with over and over again for sometimes hundreds of lives. We'll be incarnating with members of our soul group. And in one life, two people in a soul group might be father and son. In another life, they could be partners. Jordan and I were partners. He was a female. He was my wife in another life. They could be mentor. In another life, Jordan was an older rabbi in yeshiva, and I was a young rabbi, and, and he was a mentor to me. So we could have many, many different kinds of relationships. And sometimes members of a soul group will be adversaries, but more often than not, they will incarnate together in the same geographical area and at the same approximate age or time so that they can share that life. And so the soul group, we're learning from each other in each incarnation. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful bond. It, it, this is not really, maybe really the best analogy, but you know, sometimes we talk about people going to war and how when you go to war, you have this bond with these people that you served with, you know, yes. and going to earth is not exactly like going to war, but it is a very difficult planet. It's known as a reputation as one of the most difficult places to incarnate. It's very challenging places, a lot of pain here, a lot of struggle. And so souls that come to earth often have this incredibly deep bond with each other because they've gone through so much together, so much pain, so much danger, so much struggle. And so there is a very deep bond between those who incarnate anywhere, but especially on earth. Just to share with our listeners, there are other places that souls from the spirit world can incarnate into. Yeah, there are a lot of other places. I don't have any idea how many, but I'm told that it's countless numbers of planets that souls incarnate. And not just planets, there are mental worlds where the souls are living in a in an energy matrix. And so they experience that somewhat differently. But there are countless places where we incarnate. And some of these worlds come to an end. They The world eventually becomes uninhabitable. And these souls then have to move to another planet. And they're called hybrid souls. Uh, and these are souls that often have a very hard time when they come to Earth. Their, their first few incarnations, they are really having a hard time because they may have come from a planet that had very different 
challenges. There are planets where souls incarnate into bodies that live in water or live in liquid. And you know, so they come to Earth and they're, they're having to walk around and deal with gravity. And, but not just that, but deal with a body that's full of emotions and impulses. And having to cope with all of that can be very challenging for souls that have started out somewhere else and now come to a different planet. So I'm sort of digressing here, but it is interesting that there are so many planets with so many different conditions, but souls tend to stick to the same place. They keep incarnating back to the same place because they're familiar. And while souls, this is one other point, while souls can incarnate at any point in Earth history, because from the afterlife, you can watch all of Earth history. You can see everything that's happened from the very inception of the planet all the way to the point where the last soul incarnated and there's the end of incarnational processes on this planet so you can see all the entire history of the planet and souls literally can incarnate choose to incarnate at any point in the history of the species that we use to learn however souls prefer to go in the order of time on earth Mm -hmm. because certain things are familiar so a soul that was that passed away in 1930 for example i had a previous life where i died in the late 30s but there's a lot of familiar things in this world. There's there's automobiles still, you know, and there's roads and there's uh, there's a lot of familiar infrastructure that was around in the 30s. So souls will tend to come to another life that's close enough in time to the previous life where there's some things that are familiar and right. comforting. Right. Fascinating, I have to say. <laughs> Matt, on page 56, it is written, and I quote, Love on earth is an endless yearning for the love of spirit that has been largely forgotten. Can you elaborate on this and guide us on how we can connect more with love here and now in this incarnation? First of all, there's one thing that we didn't mention about that souls do a fair amount of in the afterlife, which is merging with all, merging with collective consciousness. And that's a very powerful experience because souls then just download all of this awareness. And it's it's so intense that souls can only do it for sometimes very relatively short periods of time because it's almost like a, a wire that has too much electricity going through it. It's just, it's too hot to handle after a while. But souls have this extraordinary experience of merging with all and also merging with each other. And souls can merge with each other in the afterlife in this very beautiful deep connection of being seen and known and loved. And it's such a beautiful experience to be seen perfectly, to be completely transparent, completely known, and completely loved at the same time. And so these merging experiences are very powerful. And we come to earth and we forget all of how connected we are. We forget that we're connected by love. We forget all of our past lives and all of our experiences. There's a reason for that. This amnesia is necessary for our growth here. If we remembered everything that we've already experienced in past lives and all of our deep love connections in the afterlife and to spirit and to all, we wouldn't take seriously all of the stuff that we're facing here. And these lessons we wouldn't take seriously. It would be like, oh, well, you know, I just lost so-and-so, but I'll see them in a few years when I get back up to the afterlife, it'll be fine. So losses and painful outcomes and these struggles we wouldn't take seriously and we wouldn't learn from them. So we have to forget. But the truth is that our connections are absolutely enduring. All the people that you love in this life, you will always love. The people who die, you will always be connected. Those connections are eternal. And even though at times in our lives, we lose people, we lose track of each other, we get rejected, our relationships appear to end, they don't. They will continue 
in the afterlife as all of the people who have died before us, those relationships continue and are active. And I guess one of the things that Jordan says over and over to me, and I think he really wants people to know is that all the people you love on the other side are just a thought away. If you think about them, you start to open the channel immediately. And that relationship is there anytime you want it. You can open the channel whenever you want, simply by thinking about the person. And then if you want to be deliberate about it, you can do some of the things we talked about channeling and writing, writing questions or getting yourself into kind of an, a receptive state. But still, all of the people that we love are all there with us. And that's, I think, maybe the most important thing that he's conveying, even though we forget. We forget what that world is like. We forget the Afro. We forget that we have a soul group. We forget that we've incarnated many, many, many times and faced the challenges of Earth and have gone through these incredible learning experiences many, many times. We forget all of that. But in spite of all the things we forget, the truth remains that we are united by love with all the people who we've ever cared about. That's extraordinary. Now, on several occasions in the book, Jordan expresses how consciousness, which he also refers to as collective consciousness, God, all, the divine, the spirit world itself, is infinitely expanding. Can you expand on this? Yeah. This is something that he's said to me. You know, I grew up Catholic, and the original idea of God in the Catholic Church is that God is perfect. God is omnipotent and all-knowing, and God is fully evolved. And that is not what I am hearing from Jordan. A collective consciousness, all God, however we want to describe it, source, continues to evolve. In fact, collective consciousness creates individual souls in order to evolve. So each our souls were created so that all of consciousness could continue to grow and evolve and learn. And so our sacred mission is to go to these difficult places, these physical planets, to incarnate there, to learn lessons that are not possible to learn in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. We learn through struggle. We learn through pain. We learn through the friction of living in a physical environment. These are lessons that could never be encountered in the frictionless, perfect love of the afterlife. So we come here to learn these difficult lessons and we take them back to the afterlife. We take them back and they're uploaded for all, all of consciousness, you know, God continues to evolve through all of our incarnational struggles. We're doing this very beautiful thing where these struggles are not in vain. We come here to learn and face pain and learn through adversity and pain and all of the things we're learning, we're learning basically how to love in the face of pain. You can't learn that in the afterlife because there is no pain. You can mm-hmm. only learn that here. And so we're learning this incredibly important set of truths and experiences and wisdom Then we take with us in the afterlife. It's kind of like the analogy Jordan uses a lot is like bees in a hive. So they go out and they collect nectar and stuff you know, from flowers and they bring it back to the hive. And that's what we're doing. We're incarnating. We're going out into the worlds that we populate. We're learning. We're collecting wisdom, knowledge, experience. Let me just go back to that example of the father that slaps his son. So he starts to learn after his son is very damaged and his son develops a drug addiction and various various kinds of struggles. 
wow, you know, my behavior really had a horrible impact. And that father starts to learn that that kind of aggression and damaging behavior, while it might feel good at the moment for the dad, is actually having these horrible consequences. Well, those are the things we come to learn, Mm -hmm. consequences of a choice. And it may not play out that learning is enough to change and help his son in this life, but we'll carry that learning into the next life. Uh, and we're, we're all going to have an, an opportunity and we're all here with a lesson plan. Each of us has an individual lesson plan. Dad is here with his lesson plan. The son is here with his lesson plan and everyone is learning in this process. So the, even though there's pain, even though there's hurt, and even though there's terrible things that happen in this world, they are all opportunities for us to learn. And we take that back to all. And that frames our adversity and our challenges in such a meaningful and empowered light, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, we think of pain as like, oh, I mean, this is screwed up. I'm bad. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have pain. How did this happen? And we have these judgments about pain. Instead, what we need to, the relationship to pain is, what can this teach me? It's not like this is bad. It doesn't feel good, but it's not bad that I'm having pain. In fact, it's an opportunity. Every time something hurts, it's an opportunity to ask that question, what can I learn from this? And that's what we're here to do. And pain is one of the great teachers for us. Yes. And to go back to your example, even the son who gets slapped by the father, is that sort of the lesson plan or the earth school curriculum that he's signed up for as well? Absolutely. Because we sign up for our parents. Yes. Uh, because the, our parents are going to be able to provide for us certain vital lessons that are part of our lesson plan. That son may have in a previous life, inflicted a lot of pain or had a problem with anger and not really any awareness of how that was impacting those around him. And he comes to this life. And it's not punishment. It's the karmic lesson plan. Comes to this life to learn about what it feels like to be a victim. And so the father and son have, you might say, complementary lesson plans where each is actually learning something crucial and vital, even though there's a great deal of pain involved. Yeah, I mean, so all is perfect from an aerial perspective. All is as it's meant to be, provided that we're willing to learn and open to our awakening. Would you say that's right? You said it so well, exactly. Everything that's happening needs to happen Mm -hmm. in order for us to learn and awaken. That's exactly right. Matt, this book is so profound and beautiful and meaningful. Where can our listeners find your book? It's in the usual places, as you know, Mm -hmm. stores, Barnes and Noble, and a lot of the independents, and of course, Amazon. And so people can get it, you know, anywhere books are are sold. And if you're interested, I, I encourage you to learn a little bit more about the afterlife. And also, if you have a fear of death, this is another opportunity, I think, to really change that in a way that could be very positive. Yeah, it's so expansive. It's already had a deepening and eye-opening impact on me. So I thank you for that. Now, one last question. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about yours and Jordan's message for the world? I think for me, what means the most to me is Jordan is saying, we prepare for death by paying attention to love. Preparing for death by paying attention to every moment and opportunity for love that shows up each day. Because when you're paying attention to love, you arrive in the afterlife able to hear. Communications in the afterlife are all based on love. 
And so we can prepare for the afterlife by making our life here about love. And it is a very simple meditation that Jordan encourages. He encourages us to breathe in love. Just, just breathe it in. When you're doing this simple breath meditation. Just breathe in the experience of love. Breathe out fear. Breathe in love. Breathe out fear. And just that very simple meditation, he says, can really prepare us uh, for the afterlife. Expect love. It will be there. Live love and you will recognize it when you arrive. Matt, I am so grateful for you for this book, both to you and Jordan for sharing this beautiful wisdom with the world. And I am grateful to you for spending this time with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Jim. This book has not only enlightened my perception of death and the afterlife, but it has really affected the way I think about and behold life as well. It's an absolute must read in my opinion. I wanted to give you a little further explanation of the Akashic records that Matt refers to. So they are believed to be a compendium, a non-physical anthology in the quantum or energetic realm of every universal event, thought, word, emotion, and intent ever to have occurred in the past, present, or future in terms of all entities and life forms, not just human. Akasha in the Sanskrit is the word for ethereal or sky or atmosphere or life force, meaning that the records are kind of an omnipresent force in the energetic realm. And some humans, clairvoyants, can apparently access them in this incarnation, but they are accessible to all souls in the afterlife. Well, in keeping with the theme of the luminous afterlife, here is a beautiful rendition of the sting song, Fields of Gold, sung by Eva Cassidy. Take a listen. Stay. 
Let me guide you through a meditation for amplifying your love. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just get really present with yourself. Be with yourself. You can start to breathe in slowly and deeply. Breathe in and out through your nose and kind of constrict your back of your throat so that your breathing is as though you're fogging up a mirror. This is Ujjayi yoga breathing. And as you breathe slowly and deeply, start to relax your neck and shoulders. Relax your facial muscles. And just let me guide you. 
Imagine there's an orb of pink light just above your head. And this is the energy of pure, infinite love. Now imagine that orb of pink light start to expand and expand until it's enveloping and bathing your entire being in this energy of pure, infinite love. And as you breathe in, I want you to breathe in the energy of love. And as you breathe out, think of breathing out peace. As slow as you can. Breathe in love. Breathe out peace. Breathe in love. Breathe out peace. And find yourself coming back into alignment with your true nature, with your inner being, which is love. And you can repeat the following words after me in the quietness of your heart. I am loved. I am loving. I am love. Beautiful. Continue to allow this energy of love to flow into the rest of your day. As always, I am so grateful to you for sharing this time with me. Next week on the show, we'll explore cultivating presence through nature, the power of your creativity, and art as a meditation on nature and life. I'll be joined by the very talented painter and environmental activist, Janet Jardine. In the meantime, I invite you to follow the show, leave a review, and please share it with your friends and loved ones if you find it meaningful. You can connect with me on Instagram at Diaries Podcast. The website is diariespodcast.com. And I wish you an extraordinary week filled with love, meaning, and joy. Until next time, much love. 